0: Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender diverse people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. For today's episode of Women on the Line, I'm really happy to be bringing you two important discussions covering issues in the charity sector as well as the literary sphere in so called Australia. First of all, we're going to be joined by Fiona York, who's the executive officer of Housing for the Aged Action Group, or HAG, and host of Housing for the Aged Action Group's program Raise the Roof at 3CR Community Radio in Narm, Melbourne. Fiona joins me to discuss concerns about the government's crackdown on the charity sector via amendments to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, or ACNC, regulations, and the implications that this has for sector organisations, including community media. After that, we're going to hear from Associate Professor Chelsea Wattego about her new book, Another Day in the Colony, which is published by the University of Queensland Press. Associate Professor Chelsea Wattego is a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman. Her work has drawn attention to the role of race in the production of health inequalities, and she's a founding board member of Inala Wangara, an Indigenous community development association within her community, as well as a director of the Institute for Collaborative Race Research. This interview with Chelsea Wattigo was initially aired on 3CR Community Radio's Thursday Breakfast program. And you can find out more about that show at 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday breakfast. We're joined now by Fiona York, who's the Executive Officer of Housing for the Aged Action Group or HAG and host of HAG's program Raise the Roof at 3CR Community Radio in Narm, Melbourne. Fiona, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I guess we'll just jump straight into this. So One Nation's backing of the coalition government's planned crackdown on the charity sector on Monday, the 22nd of November, comes as the latest update in a pretty alarming push to restrict possibilities for registered charities to engage in advocacy activities such as through protest. And One Nation had previously been undecided but was swayed by government agreeing to better protect churches from the changes and this clearly doesn't address concerns that have been noted by both the opposition and the community sector. So can you tell us a bit about the push across 2021 and why it's been so concerning? So the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit
1: Commission is the body that regulates registered charities in Australia. And to become a registered charity, there's already quite a lot of hoops to jump through and a lot of regulation that you need to follow. So the vast majority of community organisations, especially the small ones, I would suggest, can't reach that benchmark of becoming a registered charity already because of the level of registration. So it's a quite a regulated sector already. And if you're a registered charity, you have to report to the ACNC every year. All of your office bearers need to jump through screenings and there's a whole heap of regulation there. It does mean that you can then receive tax-deductible donations and, most importantly, big grants from philanthropy. So it's it's a really important thing to have. What these amendments mean, and I should say that I'm I'm no expert on this. I'm coming at, from this as a member of a housing organisation that's a charity. I'm also involved in an environment group that's not a charity but is an affiliated with one. And also I'm involved with 3CR, which is a charity. So there's a range of implications for these regulations that are affecting a whole bunch of things. But in about February, the government proposed these new regulations And they were to really broaden the powers of the ACNC to regulate charities around what they do and what their volunteers do and what their members do and what resources they use for potential advocacy, particularly two areas they were looking at. Currently, the way the law stands at the moment, charities aren't allowed to do anything illegal if that is breaking a law that carries a jail term or is a big fine, indictable offence. So that's already in place. And most charities, of course, don't break the law. This broadens that to include all summary offences. Summary offences are things that may occur when you're protesting, for example, or involved in nonviolent direct action or a whole bunch of things, so trespass, blocking footpaths, entering a timber harvesting safety zone. All of those things could be in scope for allowing the regulator to deregister you as a charity if you promote it or use your resources to promote it. So it's a big, significant change. And that was brought in in February and I think it was around June. A whole bunch of charities got together and wrote an open letter to the Prime Minister to say, this is really going to affect our sector. And it's really going to silence questioning and debate in the public eye. And yeah, since then, they did open for public consultations. There has been some changes, but the bulk of the amendments are still there, which is not great
0: at all. Like I was reading something from Human Rights Law Center, an explainer on this, and they were talking about things as minor, I guess you might consider, as people affiliated with a charity putting up stickers or stickers from a charity being put up where, you know, they're not allowed to be stuck. And so really there's a huge range under which charities can kind of be caught by these new regulations. Yeah. Yeah, so I was wondering, in practical terms, what are some of these avenues, you've already touched on a few, by which registered charities may face deregistration? What counts as an offence and must one be committed to to trigger deregistration?
1: No, and that's the thing. So it's not even proving that the charity has committed an offence, it's that they might or that they're likely to. And so that gives such a broad range of not just the offences that are applicable under this, but the possibility that somebody associated with the organisation may commit it. When you think about that, we're talking about, like you said, stickers. We're talking about, you know, posters where they shouldn't be. We're talking about potential trespass. And you do, in the explanatory notes of the legislation, they do call out a number of areas which makes you realise what the government's thinking, and that is farms mining and forestry. So those three areas are definitely targets. And I guess there's this overall narrative of Kind of the good charities that are doing good work, which would never break any law, no matter what that law is. And then there's the the radical advocate, you know, pretending to be charities when actually they're advocating for criminal acts. And of course, that's just not the case. But the way they've couched that in those terms means that you're going to have to do a lot more paperwork to prove it. You're going to have to have a lot more regulation of your volunteers, of your staff, of your social media accounts, of your websites, your newsletters, your e bulletins, your email lists. All of that is in scope, which is a huge overreach for the government regulator.
0: There's one concern that I kind of wanted to go into, just thinking about the way that the community sector is already hit from all sides with administrative burdens Mm. to to do all this reporting already. Hands Off Our Charities, which is an alliance of over 100 organizations across the sector, put a report out recently outlining concerns which included that the proposed regulatory changes would result in an explosion of administrative costs for charities. Mm. So could you speak to some of the impacts of increased restrictions on charities in terms of everyday administrative? burdens and the capacity that most charities have to, you know, enact these measures.
1: Yeah. So under the new regulations, you need to take reasonable steps to ensure that your resources aren't being used in the committing of a summary offence. So that means that you need to keep adequate records going back in time to be able to show that. So the estimation from that report, I believe, is that it's going to cost $150 million in the first year and $40 million every year after that. And just coming from a perspective, of running a charity at the moment, the administrative burden of just getting COVID-19 vaccination certificates for all of our volunteers and staff has been huge, let alone having to administer training about what this means, telling people what they can and can't do, representing the organisation or otherwise, because it does overreach into people's personal lives as well. And this burden, I think, especially on the small charities who are running on the smell of an oily rag already, there's so much reporting requirements for every level of government, for every type of funding, let alone just good governance. This will really burden the smaller charities and the bigger ones as well. So even the bigger charities are going to have a huge burden with this. The government's estimated something like it's a one-off thing that will cost, you know, a little bit of money, don't worry about it. But that's just not the reality of this big change that's coming. The uncertainty and the scope, the discretionary power of the commissioner to actually deregister charities and this sort of focus on a handful of activist charities being the reason, I think has got implications for dissent and for
0: public debate across the whole of the country. Speaking of dissent and public debate, in the community media space, because you're also involved in 3CR Community Radio, what are some of the implications that you see regarding increasing government definition of what is an acceptable, benevolent activity for organizations like community media, and 3CR in particular, which supports progressive quotes as part of its core business and through its many programs? And what impacts do you foresee for community media diversity?
1: Yeah, so that is a really good point. And I think given the state of play in the country at the moment with the narrowing of media ownership and the atmosphere of secrecy around our government and the lack of transparency around a lot of these things, having community media that's asking the hard questions is never more important than it is now. We're not talking about breaking the law or protests even. We're just talking about asking the questions. But the implications for many of the volunteers at 3CR and the programs on 3CR will be that, well, potentially, it's hard to say how this plays out, but potentially, you can't use 3CR resources to actively promote something that may cause a summary offence. So usually on a program, you may say, hey, there's a rally. Head on down. There's going to be speakers. It's going to be blocking the footpath potentially, and that's a summary offence. Or you may say, there's a forest blockade happening. Head on down they need people. All of these things could potentially result in the deregistration of not just the organisation who is organising the protest, but 3CR in using their resources to promote it. That's pretty scary. If it does overreach into the personal lives of people, what they do outside in their own time, that's even more significant. So they have narrowed it a little bit to say that volunteers aren't in scope, but if you're a volunteer as a member of a committee of management of an organisation, then what you do in your spare time also potentially can impact. This is unprecedented. We have not seen this attempt to silence discussion and debate and actually be able to be critical of government policies without threat of losing funding and then not being able to do the good works that there's, I think there's 55,000 charities in Australia and they're all potentially going to be affected by this.
0: A lot of programs, I think, on community media are really treading a fine line Mm. there around these new regulations where if you're doing anti-poverty work, if you're doing indigenous justice work, if you're doing land rights work, if you're doing climate change work, so many things kind of fall under the scope of a potential offence. Yeah.
1: And when you consider the absolute lack of regulation in the corporate sector compared to this heavy amount of regulation in the community sector, you can see where the government priority lies. Like why are they calling out mining, forestry and farming, do you think? And I think all of these protected industries will be able to run roughshod without any community debate. There'll be no ability for people to speak out. And we also have to take into consideration that charities already self-censor. They already keep their mouths closed because they're fearful of losing their funding. And now they'll be fearful of being deregistered and losing all ability to be able to be active in in the civil society in our community.
0: Yeah, it definitely raises some serious concerns. And what you said about the corporate sector not being subject to the same concerns, it's very interesting looking at the parallels between the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, and then the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. And while one is kind of being defanged, the other one, you know, is being armed up. Mm,
1: Yeah. And particularly with this atmosphere of silence and corruption in our government, (laughs) we need people to be speaking out, we need them to be able to speak without fear. And we need people to be able to be active politically and advocate for their causes without, without having this huge, ridiculous overreach by the regulator.
0: At the end of the day, look, these issues are political. You know, poverty is a political choice. Homelessness is a political choice. Climate change is a political choice. So, if we can't have these discussions about these concretely political issues, then how are we going to be able to do our jobs?
1: Yeah, and also when you think about the amount, if one of the charities is threatened with deregistration, the amount of resources that will go into defending that as well, similar to the strategic litigation slapsuits, where you're tied up in red tape and tied up in try to defend yourself, and that takes away resources from doing all of the fantastic work the charities are doing across the country and so that's a bridge that we'll have to cross when we come to it but yeah I guess in the meantime if listeners want to find out more they can jump on the Hands Off Our Charities website which has a whole bunch of information and links in there and and I would encourage anyone that has concerns about government overreach and regulation but also about the ability for people to speak out on causes that they care about this has got implications for everyone so so jump on there I reckon.
0: You're listening to Women on the Line on your local community radio station. You just heard from Fiona York, who's the executive officer of Housing for the Aged Action Group, talking about the government's crackdown on the charity sector via amendments to the Australian charities and not-for-profits commission regulations. Next up, you're going to hear from Associate Professor Chelsea Wadigo talking about her new book, Another Day in the Colony. Here's that interview. Before we get into a discussion about your amazing new book, Another Day in the Colony, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself in a little more detail?
2: Sure. So my name is Chelsea Wadigo, formerly Chelsea Bond. I'm Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman, mum of five kids. I'm a professor of Indigenous health at the Queensland University of Technology. I'm a director of the Institute for Collaborative Race Research and a board member of Anala Wongara, and I'm an author of Another Day in the Colony.
0: I really like the fact that all of those things come together in in Another Day in the Colony. It's very much a situated and placed book, uh, which is something that you talk about in the introduction that you're writing from a place. And it really weaves together memoir and manifesto, but embodied sovereign theorizing on race and colonization as well. I was hoping that you could tell us a bit about what it's meant to you to write against colonial possession in this way and the importance of sovereign storytelling, which you talk about coming from Romaine Morton.
2: I really enjoy um, writing, but it's the thinking that I get to do in the course of writing, and most of the stuff I write about comes from a place of trying to grapple with some stuff and make sense of things. What I loved in telling the stories in the book was the way in which Everyday stories of blackfellas were foreground as a way to understand this world. And one example is Sister Eula Monklin, who was at the launch party on uh, that we had, who was so excited to be the conclusion in this book. And, you know, the everyday stories of blackfellas that uh, I was able to share and that they gave me permission to share with and to think about. And it was so nourishing for me to bring those stories into conversation, rather than try and find a way for me to, you know, recite other theorists and, and do the wanky academic thing that so many do and, and, and that we're supposed to do. So there was great joy in bringing our full selves into this story. And even though it was written from a place where I was felt really broken at the time, yeah it's it's a weird thing to go that was actually a really joyful experience to be able to tell our stories on our own terms and i was just very fortunate to have such great guidance around me um, from a lot of people that just yeah made me feel stronger in what i was doing held me accountable and yet took the time to actually think with me and and just seeing how when seeing some of the some of the mob who had you know told their story and watching them read it back And see that how they were represented. Like it's it's such a good feeling to be able to remind people how, you know, deadly they are. Yeah, I'm really proud of that.
0: That so clearly comes through. That's really an homage to black beauty, love, joy, resistance. And it's also very much a book that is grounded in relational thinking. It's very much in conversation with all of the people whose stories come through the book. And yeah, I was wondering if you could speak a little more about how relationality and being in community has informed the way that you write. Writing
2: from a place of knowing who you are, where you come from and and remembering that and staying true to that is so important. And I, I just... You know, I always talking about the stories at our own kitchen table and you know, I experienced the disjuncture between the stories told about us and the stories told by us and no longer accept that explanation that it's something that we're lacking that explains the disjuncture. There is a violent function to the fictions that they write about us. But to know that truth means to be in conversation with each other and to check in with each other. And this, I, I was really conscious about people not think I'm trying to universalise my experience either that I'm just sharing through a story as a part of showing my workings and in conversation with other people, that it's, you know, this idea of this kind of the individual knower who can know to claim and to climb. What I hope that I was able to do in the course of this is model a kind of anti-racist practice for those writing about race, that our stories are not for the taking for you to theorise and to know better than us. You know, we had this big fight this year around what those scholars did to Chris Rella Baker's story. They took it from him. When he was speaking on his country and pretended to know it better than what he could. And he again features in the book in conversation with him to be able to speak about him. Who are we to speak about someone else's story without being in relationship with them? And so I, I hope to model the kind of practice that we want to see is that, you know, racial violence is not something that you get to extract and theorise about and know better than us. And, you know, I've learnt about race through my conversations and experiences with other blackfellas, our responses to it, um, whether it's sitting on the sidelines at a football match in country Queensland, you know, or the phone call from Uncle Vern after doing Wild Black Women, the everydayness of this stuff. And, and we have a responsibility to, when we are speaking, to be honest about how we come to know and to act with care with people's stories. They're not free for the taking. And I think that's one of the my, I think, the challenges with, Some of the anti-racist work is this idea that victims of racial violence are in need of saving and through knowing their experience better than them and taking it from them i don't know how else to do this work if not in relationship with the very people that we're supposed to be speaking with and for and to
0: yeah of course and the way that you write and uh, you know, weaving people's stories, it shows that everyone's theorizing and everyone's in- engaging in critical theorizing about how they move through the world. I've got
2: a bit of a gripe around how we speak about lived experience—the way in which you can get weaponized, as well as the way in which you can get dismissed. You know, it's—I have a love-hate relationship with some of the discourse around lived experience. And so, I'm not suggesting that you know you have to have lived everything in order to speak about anything, but you have to be in relationship with that which you speak of. And there's an ethics of practice around how we are in relationship. And so it means citing those conversations, those mundane moments, and recognising that our people are theorists, our artists, our rappers, like they're everywhere. We're thinking about this, we're trying to make sense of it, using different ways to make sense of it. I write op-eds and sometimes do research and do this stuff. Some people write songs and plays and all kinds of things. Theorizing, and um, sometimes I feel like you know, I haven't cited enough scholars in the book, but I'm like, No, I have. They're there, they're named, they're just not as well known as those who are recognized as knowers in the academy. And I, I hope that other black fellows, uh, black academics, see the importance and possibilities of the different places in which black thinking exists and not continue to uphold, you know, the violent kind of system that we operate in. And, you know, including what happened with the Feminist Law Journal, it shows that we're kept out of that role of noah even when we've met all the requirements on their terms of what it is to know and you know met the highest standard but still will will keep us out and so i hope that it shows people the possibility of messing with the rules that they insist we adhere to
0: yeah because this book definitely doesn't read like a reaction the writing is very proactive in terms of asserting sovereignty and asserting a particular Way of engaging in critical thinking that is profoundly relational rather than saying, you know, they say this, but we know that. It's more just we know this. Yeah. And I was really interested in the way that you wrap up with uh, chapter six, Hope, where you make the case for nihilism and you kind of break down the function of hope for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in a settler colonial or colonial settler state. And as we sort of bring the conversation to a close, could you tell us a bit about nihilism and, and truth and the way that you speak about those in relation to one another?
2: Yeah, so it's the, an idea articulated by Paul Beatty in The Sellout* when he speaks about the final stage of blackness as unmitigated blackness. Um, and he's like, I don't know what it is. It's the serious actor. It's a night in jail. It's, you know, and, and he concludes sometimes it's the meaninglessness of it all that makes life worth living. And I guess what I um, wanted to do is make a case for retiring hope as a strategy for surviving in the colony. And a lot of us have lived in hope, have bought into the idea of hope, you know, of the brand new day, a new dawn breaking, the promised land transcending this all. And it's the realisation that that's never going to happen because they're never leaving. Some people think that that's then, you know, irresponsible or whatever. I, I Hope has betrayed black brothers so many times, so many times. I've seen too many broken black fellas betrayed by hope. And what I'm suggesting as an alternative to hope is remembering who the f- you are and where you come from, is to be sovereign, just act on our terms, not wait for a future moment to arrive for us, but just be as we always have and always will be. If we know the truth of this place, in all of its ugliness, in all of its violence, then maybe we'll strategize better in a way that better protects black blackfellas in the course of the fight. Some people think that it's it's scary to think of the idea that the fight is never ending. And, yeah, of course that's hard to accept. But we all get to that point at some stage in our life where we realise how f- up it all is. What I'm suggesting is let's be proactive on this. Let's, let's just all get on the same page. And we work from that basis. And the freedom it affords black blackfellas, there's something so beautiful about it. You know Eula Monkland's story when she realised that it was all, and what she then did and how she carries herself—that speaks to the power of being sovereign, because our power exists within us. It's not found in their verdicts or their validation. And I'm just really excited to the ways in which Blackfellas enact embody that. I mean, this is not new. I haven't come up with a new idea. I'm just pointing out in those moments to see how really powerful we can be when we act on our own terms. And that was helped by Annie Lilla Watson in my own fight. When I was in my pursuit of winning, she called me out on it because I was still trying to win on their terms. And um, that was when I felt strong and and then I got called. So, yeah, in, in retiring hope, I'm not suggesting it's hopeless. In fact, I'm reminding us of how powerful we really are.
0: Yeah, you've just done such a brilliant job of balancing that line between, you know, making sure that you're not writing about nihilism as pessimistic, but also, you know, really galvanizing people with that, the way that you bring the book to a close and you're writing to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and that love comes through so strongly at the end, but also all through the book. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? I think just uh, there's, I mean, this
2: has come about through a lot of thinking, a lot of conversation with the black fellows who have been betrayed by institutions that claim to care for us. And lots of conversations that can't make the book because they're, you know, private conversations where people have come to me at a time where they felt broken because they, they suddenly came to realise that, you know, who they laboured for actually didn't care about us. And so a lot of people have paid the price for the learnings that I share in the book that can't be named because of that's. Where that's their journey. But in writing this, I was always thinking about the souls of blackfellas in the course of the writing and what I needed to hear at times, um, what, I, what I've had to tell other people at times. And it's been so overwhelming being able to see the response from blackfellas in reading this book. And it's funny because people who are not familiar with kind of our life world stuff feel like it's a tragic story and are less like, you know, overwhelmed by how bad it is. Then seeing the response of blackfellas reading it and what they get, the feeling they get from it and the thinking around it, that's been just really overwhelming and really exciting to be able to to do that for mob. And yeah, it's made me think more about the work that I continue to do and how I continue to focus on being of service to mob intellectually and, and politically and culturally.
0: That was a conversation with Associate Professor Chelsea Wattigo about her new book, Another Day in the Colony, which is published by the University of Queensland Press. That's about all we have time for today on Women on the Line. So to recap, first up, you heard from Fiona York, The Executive Officer of Housing for the Aged Action Group. And Fiona joined us to discuss proposed changes to regulations of the Australian Charities and Not for Profits Commission, which stand to have really concerning impacts on organisations in the charity sector, including community media organisations. And then, of course, you just heard from Associate Professor Chelsea Wadigo on her excellent new book, Another Day in the Colony, which, as a reminder, can be found via the University of Queensland Press. Women on the Line is produced and presented by women and gender-diverse people in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. Women on the Line is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And our theme music is by Ripley Kavara. Past programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line.